G'day, I'm George Christensen, host of Conservative One, and I've got a very special guest today that's joining us again on this podcast. Uh, he is the clinical psychologist from the University of Ghent in Belgium. We're talking about Professor Matthias de Smet. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us for Conservative One. Now, you've been with us before talking about mass formation. Uh, this is a, a theory, or actually it's more of an observation uh, that you have developed that uh, uh, was popularised to the Western world on the Joe Rogan experience by Dr. Robert Malone, who's also been a guest on this podcast. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Matisse, you've written a book. It's called The Psychology of Totalitarianism. It is a brilliant book, and I recommend it to all of my viewers. Uh, go out and get a copy, and it will, you know, it will blow your mind as to uh, what is currently going on. You can see the correlations uh, with the times that we live in right now with what uh, uh, Dr. Desmet has put in this book. Uh, Dr. Desmet, tell us broadly um, why did you feel the need to write this book, and what is the central thesis of the book? Yeah, um, well, I started to to take notes on, on, on the topic of totalitarianism in two, back in 2017, actually. At that moment, I, I had a feeling already that a new kind of totalitarianism was emerging uh, in, 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 in the world, worldwide even. And um, it was exactly this kind of totalitarianism. Hannah Arendt, one of the most famous authors on totalitarianism, who wrote this wonderful book, uh, the, Psych the uh, uh, Origins the of Totalitarianism. Yes. She wrote this wonderful book. And, and um, uh, in this book, which was written in 1951, um, she warned us. She said, we've seen fascist totalitarianism in Nazi Germany. We've seen communist totalitarianism in the Soviet Union. But soon we will see the emergence of a new worldwide totalitarianism. And this totalitarianism won't be led by gang leaders such as Stalin or Hitler. It will be led by dull bureaucrats and technocrats. That's what she wrote in 1951. And uh, from 2017 onwards, I had a feeling that we were in really nearing the moment where this new totalitarianism might emerge. And I started to take notes on totalitarianism, on technocratic totalitarianism. And then when the corona crisis started, I noticed that something very specific happened in our society, a phenomenon which is called a mass formation, a specific kind of group formation. And it is exactly this kind of group formation, this kind of mass formation, that is the psychological basis of totalitarianism. People often... Um, mix up classical, a classical dictatorship with a totalitarian state. But that's something completely different. A classical dictatorship yeah. is, is, is based on extremely simple uh, psychological uh, uh, grounds. It's just the population that is scared of a small group of people, a dictatorial regime, and that consequently accepts that this small group of people imposes unilaterally its social contract to, the, to, the, to society. But a, a totalitarian state is something completely different. A totalitarian state is based on this phenomenon of mass formation. And uh, that was exactly what I noticed in the corona crisis. There was a new kind of social dynamic, a, a, new, a, a, a certain group formation, uh, which, which, uh, which was exactly a mass formation. So a mass formation in which the people who are in the grip of the group formation uh, typically tend to become completely blind for everything uh, that goes against what the group believes in. People develop a, a radical uh, a incapability to take a, a critical distance of what the group believes in. And also they become radically willing to self-sacrifice <clears throat> to, to a very high extent. They want to sacrifice, when people are in the grip of a mass formation, really? they want to sacrifice everything uh, that mm. was important for them. When the group asks, 
when the mass asks to do so. And, and uh, another very typical characteristic is that when a mass formation emerges, <coughs> sorry, people become radically intolerant for dissonant voices to the extent yes. that, in the end, they start to commit cruelties to the people who do not go along with the mass. So that's a typical group formation that is the basis of totalitarianism. And I think, uh, I'm quite convinced that that is what happened in the corona crisis for the first time since maybe the Second World War. We've mm. seen this enormously large-scale mass formation in our society. So this is the basis for your book. It's, it's, it's uh, unraveling this observation of mass psychosis. So I've got to ask, um, did you develop the term mass psychosis? Uh, I know that uh, some of the underpinnings uh, go back a bit. Obviously, you spoke of uh, Hannah Arendt, and uh, there's also, um, I think he's a Dutch author, and the name escapes me at the moment, but the fellow that wrote... Uh, uh, the rape of the mind. Uh, there's elements yeah, of that yeah. in this theory. Um, uh, is is the term something you've developed, or is this something that's been uh, borrowed and enhanced from others, uh, Doctor Desmet? The author you refer to is Joost Mirlo. That's right. He, yes. he wrote the book, The Rape of the Mind. But um, um, no, I, I, I never used the term mass psychosis, just because both from an intellectual, a pragmatic and an ethical point of view, I think it's better to use a more neutral term, such as mass formation. Um, it was a podcast host who used the term uh, mass formation psychosis for the first time. And yes. then uh, Dr. Malone used it at Joe Rogan's. Um, uh, and then it's spread around the world, actually. Uh, but uh, Dr. Malone doesn't use the term anymore now. He also uses yeah. the term, uh, he referred to me at Joe Rogan's and he, he also uses the term mass formation now. So mass formation is a term that was used from time to time by such people as uh, Gustave Le Bon, Canetti, um, yes. um, Sigmund Freud as well. Um, but I, I, uh, I use the term again and I rewrote the theory in a way that it was more accessible for a broader audience. Uh, it took me a few months <laughs> to to find, to, 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 to formulate the theory in such a way that it could be spread to the, to the wider population. Uh, sometimes some things in this theory I added, uh, such as the importance of the object of anxiety and stuff. Uh, other things, I integrated a lot of the aspects of the theories of uh, Le Bon, McDougall, Freud, Kennedy, Anna Arendt, and so on. I integrated it in, in one concise theory and uh, started to talk about that. Just to try to inform people or try to show people what might be going on in our society that uh, gave these bizarre effects that make people behave in such a strange way. Um, yeah, okay. So I've read uh, not all of your book, but uh, large sections of that book. Uh, I want to refer a couple of points out of it. You uh, uh, talk about totalitarianism, obviously, a fair bit in the book. But there's one section that jumped right out at me, and I'm just going to uh, bring that up. You say this, totalitarianism has its roots in the insidious psychological process of mass formation, you just discussed that, only through a thorough analysis of this process uh, do we understand the shocking behaviours of a totalitarised population, including an exaggerated willingness of individuals to sacrifice their own personal interests out of solidarity with the collective. You've just spoken about that as well. Uh, a profound intolerance of distant voices. You've spoken about that as well and a pronounced susceptibility to pseudo-scientific indoctrination and propaganda. You haven't spoken about that one. Tell us about the pseudo-scientific indoctrination and propaganda. Tell us about the theory first, and then tell us how you witnessed that during the pandemic era. Okay, yes, well, so sh shall I first discuss the theory on, of mass formation in, in a nutshell? or? or? Please, please do. Please do. Yeah, that might help. Well, as I said, mass formation is a specific kind of group formation. And um, this kind of group formation exists as long as mankind exists. So, uh, for instance, examples of 
uh, uh, mass formation in ancient times or the Crusades, uh, the witch hunts, uh, the French Revolution is a little bit more recent. And then um, uh, in the 20th century, we had the very large scale mass formations of uh, the Soviet Union and uh, Nazi Germany. Um, so mass formation exists uh, uh, as long as mankind exists, but the masses, the character of the masses changed. So for instance, the masses, uh, the mass formation uh, became larger uh, and uh, started to last longer throughout the last 300 centuries. And that's the reason of course why uh, in the 20th century, we, 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 we uh, uh, saw the emergence of this new kind of state, which didn't exist before the 20th century, and which is called a totalitarian state. Uh, so this state which is based on the process of mass formation. So what is mass formation? Well, it, um, mass formation emerges in a society when very specific conditions are met. And the most crucial of these conditions is that there have to be a lot of people who feel disconnected from their social and natural environment. So people who feel profoundly lonely. And that's the first and most crucial condition, which was really fulfilled just before the corona crisis. We've seen how the number of lonely people increases throughout the last few hundreds of years, step by step. And just before the corona crisis, uh, uh, a new peak uh, um, uh, was observed. So over 30% of the population worldwide reported to feel lonely, to have no meaningful relationships at all, and to only connect to other people through the internet. And the reason why um, this, the number of lonely people increases constantly throughout the last few centuries is that is the, the uh, emergence of, of, or is the industrialization and the mechanization of the world and the use of technology. That's what I explain in the first five chapters of my book. Something in the use of technology, the mechanization of the world, um, uh, disconnects people, makes people, makes that people stop resonating with their environment. So you can describe this really in detail. And that's a very, something extremely important to understand. And so that's the reason why the number of lonely people uh, increased throughout the last centuries and also why the mass formation became more and more powerful, stronger and stronger, lasted longer. And in the end, led to the emergence of totalitarian states. So that's the most crucial condition. And this condition leads to, has a series of effects. Once people feel disconnected, they will typically start to be confronted with lack of meaning making. They will experience no purpose anymore in their lives. That's logical. I won't explain it now, but it's logical. If you feel disconnected from your environment, you start to be confronted with lack of meaning making. And also that was clear just before the corona crisis. Over 60% of the people reported that uh, they considered their job to be a so-called bullshit job, <laughs> which means a job without any meaning, without any purpose. And, and, and then once people feel disconnected and once they feel confronted with these, lack, with these experiences of lack of meaning making, something very typical will happen at the affective level, at the emotional level. People will start to be confronted with so-called freely floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means anxiety, frustration, and aggression, people cannot attribute, cannot connect to a cause, to a mental representation. Thus, so people feel anxious, but they don't know what they feel anxious for. They feel frustrated and aggressive, but they don't know what they feel frustrated and aggressive for. And this is an extremely aversive mental state, because if you feel anxious and you don't know what you feel anxious for, mm. you feel completely out of control. And in the same vein, if you feel frustrated and aggressive and you don't know what you feel frustrated and aggressive for, you cannot direct your aggression at something outside of yourself. And it remains all inside of you, which is also which leads to a certain tension in the psychological system, which is extremely aversive. So when a population is in this condition, something very typical might happen. If under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety, and at the same time, delivering a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, then all this free-floating anxiety might connect to the object of anxiety, and there might be a huge willingness in the population to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, just because in this way, People feel that they can control their anxiety. They know now what they feel anxious for and they have a strategy to deal with it. And at the same time, 
they also are offered the perspective to direct all that frustration and aggression at something outside themselves. So that is the first step of every mass formation. During the Crusades, the object of anxiety was the Muslims in the holy country. During the witch hunts, the object of anxiety were the witches. And the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety were the witch hunts or the, or the, the witch trials. During the French Revolution, the object of anxiety were the noblemen. During the, in Nazi Germany, it was the Jews and so on. The first step is always a narrative that indicates an object of anxiety and delivers a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. And then, once this happened, something very specific, something even more important happens in a second step. That means that because, just because so many people at the same time participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, people feel connected again. They stop feeling lonely. And this loneliness was the root cause of the problem, of the, of the aversive state people felt themselves in. So you could say, well, mass formation, what's the problem with it? People who felt disconnected and now they are connected again. They felt lonely, now they don't feel lonely again. Yes, there is a problem. There is a huge problem. First, mass formation always needs a scapegoat. And second, even, even more problematic, the mass formation doesn't lead to a new connection. People feel as if they are connected again, but they are not. In a mass formation, what is so typical for mass formation is that a mass is a kind of group which is not formed because individuals connect to other individuals. A mass is a group that is formed because each individual separately connects to the collective. The, the famous or the infamous solidarity in a mass is never a solidarity of one individual to another. It's a solidarity of every individual towards the collective. And that explains, of course, why in the corona crisis, so many people were talking about solidarity. And at the same time, they accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help him. At the same time, they accepted that when their parents were dying somewhere, that they were not allowed to visit them. So that's the solidarity in a, in a mass formation the, so the bonds, the longer a mass formation uh, exists, the more the bonds between the individuals are impoverished. All the energy, all the love, all the solidarity is sucked away from the bond between the, in the individuals. And it's all injected, invested in the bond between the individual and the state and the collective. And that in the end, in a mass formation, the solidarity between individuals becomes much less powerful than the solidarity with the collective. And that explains why every totalitarian system, which is always based on mass formation, typically ends up in a radically paranoid atmosphere in which parents are willing to report their children to the state. I can give you an example. Two, two months ago, I was talking to this woman of Iran, Sharif Ishtali, who lived in Iran during the revolution in Iran which was a large-scale mass formation. Um, and she told me that she has seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state and how she hung the rope around his neck on the scaffold. And when he was hung, she claimed to be a heroine for doing so. So that is mass formation. In the end, all the bonds between the individuals are destroyed. And even the strongest bonds, the bonds that were the strongest before the mass formation, disappear. And people are willing to snitch everyone to the state if um, they think um, uh, they are not that person is not loyal enough. And in the end, after a mass formation, that's extremely important. So mass formation starts from loneliness. The reason why mass formation emerges is loneliness. But after a mass formation, there is even much more loneliness because all the bonds are destroyed. And in other words. Once a large-scale mass formation emerges, society is ready for a new mass formation, which is sometimes even more powerful. That's what we've seen a little bit with the war in Ukraine. The corona narrative disappeared a little bit in the background. And then immediately we noticed that the uh, narrative on the war in Ukraine seemed to have the same function. There was again an object of anxiety, again this blindness, again this intolerance for dissonant voices and so on. Um, so that's uh, the dramatic 
thing about mass formation, it uh, creates, recreates the conditions uh, that lead to the mass formation. Um, now, I, I want to get on to the question that I was asking uh, about pseudo-scientific indoctrination, but I'm going to put it to the side for a second because um, your outline actually brings forward two other questions. Uh, with totalitarian regimes in the past, and perhaps I am talking about the ones that have been classical dictatorships, but uh, nonetheless, it seems to me that the anxiety was almost uh, stage-managed. The anxiety was developed uh, so that the solution or, or, or the foci could also be developed um, to enable the control. Tell me, in your opinion, has recent events been stage-managed or does that really not matter? Um, the conclusion is exactly the same. What's of your course view? it matters. It matters. Of course it matters. Yes, so because what I've been describing now is a certain evolution at the level of the psychological state of the population. So the psychological state of the population changed throughout the last few hundred years. It changed and the population became more vulnerable for mass formation because more and more people felt lonely and so on. But at the same time, there was also an, evolu an evolution at the level of the elite, a very important evolution. Namely, before, uh, let's say, the 16th century, the leaders of the, of the society were truly leaders in this respect that they imposed their will to society and to the masses. When the mass formation emerged, the leaders often um, went against it. They could, they could impose their will to the population, to the masses. But as soon as we saw the emergence of uh, uh, the more democratic discourse uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in our society, the leaders actually became followers because from then on they had to be elected and they had to try to know uh, what um, um, the masses wanted and then give them what they wanted. So in the beginning of the 19th century, um, there were some people who started to realize that we were in a problematic situation because the mass formation became stronger and stronger. The masses are completely irrational and destructive. And it seems that the politicians couldn't control them. So what happened then is that at that moment, um, and actually it started a little bit earlier with Napoleon uh, in the first place, at that moment, there were certain people who tried to solve this problem in the following way. And I'm talking about such uh, uh, people as um, uh, Trotter, Lippmann, uh, Edward Bernays, uh, uh, and so on. These guys, these guys knew about mass formation. They knew the work, for instance, of Gustave Le Bon in the 19th century. And their line of reasoning was the following. The, pol the politicians are not true leaders anymore. I'm quoting literally uh, Edward Bernays now. They are not true leaders anymore. They cannot control the masses. What we have to do is we have to develop a huge propaganda machinery through which we can constantly manipulate the masses and lead them where we want them to go, uh, or otherwise we will fall prey to the masses. That was their naive line of reasoning. So from then on, from then on, there was the constant development of a huge propaganda machinery. And uh, we know the propaganda machinery very well of the Soviet Union and of, uh, and of uh, Nazi Germany, but in, in the entire Western culture, uh, there was propaganda from then on, constantly, constantly. And so, and then something very typical happened. Gustave Le Bon warned us already in the 19th century that if someone tries to manipulate the masses and takes the lead of the masses, this person typically will be hypnotized by the masses. <laughs> That's something very strange. So mass formation is a kind of hypnosis, literally. Uh, I described it in my book. Yeah, so, technically speaking, it's a kind of, um, of, a, of, a, of hypnosis, group hypnosis. And the, the, the people who tried to manipulate the masses actually very soon became as uh, um, destructive and as irrational as the masses themselves. You see this very, you can see this very well when you study the work of, uh, of such people as Bernays and so on. They all started to abuse the masses.
for their own advantages. And very soon, uh, their propaganda techniques were used by people who tried to manipulate the masses from behind the screens, large capitalists and so on. And uh, that, that, that is what happened throughout the last 100 years. Uh, we've seen uh, the, the development of a huge uh, uh, apparatus of propaganda and doctrination of psychological warfare and so on. And of course, the large institutions of the world use this propaganda and the large institutions of the world uh, actually all represent this kind of mechanist, biological reductionist, transhumanist uh, view on man in the world. And it's that view on man in the world that uses the entire uh, propaganda and indoctrination machinery to try to convince society to uh, change in a direction of a technocratic society because in one way or another they have this a strange belief, uh, for me a delusional belief, uh, that the only solution to the problems of our society uh, is strict technological control of the human being, uh, which, well, that's a strange thing. We, we, are, we ended up in a situation in which a very specific kind of mass emerged because the masses of the ancient times were masses in which the individuals were physically uh, uh, together. Uh, they were physically together. But the modern masses are, uh, do usually... Uh, do not meet physically. The modern masses consist of people who are all uh, in an isolated state in their homes uh, and who are all in the grip of the same uh, ideas, thoughts, uh, images, uh, narratives, uh, and so on, that are disseminated through the mass media. And it is this so-called lonely mass, a term that was coined by uh, Jacques Ellul, uh, who wrote a wonderful book on propaganda, it is this so-called lonely mass, a mass in which people, people do not physically gather or meet that is the perfect condition for propaganda and indoctrination. Yeah, so, uh, okay, so you contend that, that this, uh, this hypnosis, uh, to use that term, has been deliberately, deliberately foisted upon society, Western society in particular. Um, interestingly yeah. enough, the Can anxiety that... Yes, go, go on, go on. I, I, I've, never, I've never said that. Just because at the moment, uh, it, my expertise is describing the, the mechanism of mass formation. And I know history showed that it can go in... Uh, that, that a mass formation can emerge in two ways. It can emerge yes. spontane spontaneously or it can be artificially provoked. For instance... In Nazi Germany, it emerged spontaneously. There was first this mass formation, and then there were certain leaders, talented speakers, who emerged from the mass and took the lead of the mass and uh, uh, established a diabolic pact between the elite and the masses, and in this way could seize control of society and could uh, uh, establish a totalitarian state. But in the Soviet Union, it went in the opposite direction. In the Soviet Union, there was first the elite, who used indoctrination propaganda and who succeeded in creating a mass formation artificially. So it can happen, it can go in two directions. And I think like in our situation, we need a very, very thorough and profound uh, uh, judicial inquiry to find out uh, to what extent it was artificially created. Of course, there were institutions involved. And of course, um, uh, there were all kinds of people who who wanted to use this narrative uh, for all kinds of, of, of purposes. Um, but at the same time, I also think that the population was in the perfect state for a mass formation. Um, and I can actually prove this a little bit, I think, because two months before the corona crisis started, I went to the bank to pay back my mortgage because I said to all my friends, that was the end of December 2019, I said to all my friends, you will see, one of these days, we will wake up in a new society. Everything shows that society, as it exists now, is about to collapse and that a new equilibrium will emerge in our society. I went to the bank, paid back my mortgage, and two months later, uh, the corona crisis started. Because actually, such a phenomenon, as it emerged in the corona crisis, could have started 10 years before, 20 years before, 30 years before. There were also people there, and the WHO uh, institution 
who try to convince the people that everyone should be vaccinated against uh, the flu and stuff like that. But at that moment, no such thing as a mass formation happened. And the reason probably is just that uh, at that moment, the the psychological conditions were not there already for a mass formation. And as soon as the psychological conditions are there, you only need someone who tries to convince the world of a certain narrative for a mass formation to emerge. But there are constantly in our society people who distribute, disseminate narratives that provide an object of fear. But usually it doesn't lead to a mass formation. So it's a, it's a complex dynamical system yeah. in which many factors are involved uh, and that we should not reduce to one factor, I think. There are always many factors involved. Okay. Um, I guess that... Is there a, a uh, is there a difference in outcome as to whether it's manufactured or whether it happens sort of organically? No, there isn't. There is no difference. Uh, at least Hannah Arendt uh, said that the outcome is the same. It's always this diabolic pact between the masses and the elite. Uh, it's important to know. We have to know how it happens. For the, for instance, it's clear that okay. The, 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 the process can start in a different way. Sometimes it starts in the first place in the elite. Sometimes it starts in the first place in the population. But the outcome is always the same. Is this diabolic pact between the elite and the masses. And that makes a totalitarian system so dangerous. Mm-hmm. These masses that are involved. A classical dictatorship controls public space and political space. But the totalitarian state controls public space, political space, and private life, just because it has this huge secret police, which is this part of the population that is in the grip of the state ideology. And so the essence, the point of gravity of a totalitarian, of a classical dictatorship is in the elite. And if you destroy a part of the elite, a substantial part, then the classical dictatorship will collapse. But in a totalitarian state, if you destroy a part of the totalitarian elite, nothing happens. Just because the point of gravity is situated in the first place in the ideology mm-hmm. that creates the elite and that creates the mass. And if you that's the reason why if you destroy a part of the elite, as Stalin did, Stalin destroyed 60% of his own communist party and nothing happened. Everything continued as nothing, as if nothing happened. These people were replaced and the system continued just because. This was this, there was this mass, this mass that was in the grip of this ideology and consequently, which, const, which constantly recreated the elite. So that's something we have to really understand as well as possible. The world in the first place is in the grip of a pseudo-scientific ideology. That's the point. And unless we change that, we will constantly be reconfronted with emerging totalitarianism, uh, with emerging mass formation and totalitarianism. So which what has to happen now is that we need a small group of people who in a very clear way start to see that this pseudo-scientific mechanist view on men in the world, this transhumanist view, view on men in the world, for instance, is wrong and that we and we should offer, this small group should offer a trustworthy alternative for this ideology and it is at that moment that we can expect that uh, this cruel mass formation and totalitarianism will be uh, will stop. Uh, so not, not earlier, I think. Uh, so, so before we get to that grand solution, uh, again, just to go back to the pseudo-scientific aspect to it, Tell us about that. What is your view on what has constituted uh, pseudo-scientific indoctrination over the last two years? Uh, Which institutions do we see it in? And what role does it have to play in mass formation? Okay, yes. Well, but what what has been happening uh, throughout the last two years is part of a process that is much, much older. It's part of a process that is four or five hundred years old. Uh, in the beginning of the, of the 16th century, uh, the modern sciences started to emerge in, in our culture. And uh, in the beginning, these, these the scientists were 
really open-minded people who who um, who got rid of a, a kind of institutionalized religious dogmas. Uh, I tell that's I, I I want to stress institutionalized dogmatic religion because there is no problem with real religion, but institutionalized dogmatic religion religion that's a problem. So these scientists, in one way or another, put aside uh, this uh, dogmatic religion and they they approach the world in a really open-minded way. That was perfect. It led to a very fruitful uh, 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 new discourse in society. But slowly, because science was so successful, uh, it became the dominant discourse. And at that moment, science became an ideology itself. It became a set of dogmas itself. From then on, people started to become convinced that the entire universe is a kind of a material machine material machine uh, that can be 100% understood, completely understood in rationalist terms. So the idea that human rational understanding should be the basis of human living together and of human existence, uh, got grip of the world. And people started to believe that rational understanding could explain everything, that it could make man godlike. That's literally what you will read. Uh, and, and philosophers who represent this kind of worldview. And that's also what you literally read now in the books of, for instance, Yuval Harari. When he, right. he, he, yes, one of his books was Homo Deus, which literally, in which he literally explains that man is on the verge of becoming God so, uh, uh, just through his rational understanding of the material There's basis. A lot of that talk that goes on at the World Economic Forum as well, uh, yep. particularly in and the transhumanist agenda that they're pushing. Absolutely. It's it's all the same. It's it's a kind of ideology that started four or five hundred years ago, which believes that we can that we can reduce the universe to a material phenomenon, a, a material phenomenon, a set of molecules and atoms that all interact according to the elementary laws of mechanics and that can be perfectly uh, uh, understood in a rational way and that hence we will learn how we can manipulate this material machine, for instance the brains, the human body, in such a way that we will no longer die, that we will no longer suffer and so on. So that of course is an illusion. <laughs> Every major scientist concluded exactly the opposite. Whether we are talking about Janos Bolyai or Schrödinger, Heisenberg, Bohr, Max Planck, uh, Mandelbrot, uh, Lorenz, uh, doesn't matter. They all concluded that, and I quote literally one of the most famous mathematicians of, um, of the 20th century, René Tom, that part of reality that can be understood in a rational, mechanistic way is extremely limited. And the rest of reality we can only know by empathically resonating with it. So that's the point. Each totalitarian state used pseudo-scientific ideologies to, in his propaganda and indoctrination, just because they knew, probably, or in one way or another, that was what the population was sensitive for. The population started to be in the grip of this mechanist view on man and the world. And consequently, the most successful propaganda and indoctrination was always this kind of rationalist, pseudo-scientific uh, propaganda. And that was it, uh, ultimately the propaganda that was most successful and that led in the Soviet Union to the emergence of uh, Stalinism in Nazi Germany to the emergence of Nazism and at least now to a new kind of technocratic transhumanist uh, uh, ideology which all also has a huge grip uh, on the population. Of course, they, they have to use uh, all kinds of narratives to convince the population to go along with, uh, with this kind of ideology. But uh, in the end, in the end, the reason why the population is sensitive to these narratives is because deep inside their own minds, they believe in this rationalist ideology. And um, uh, even while all major scientists warned us, like, if you stay true to, to rational understanding, you soon arrive at a point where you can see that uh, uh, you reach the limit of rational understanding. And beyond that limit, you need to move on and use a different way of knowing the world, a much more resonating way. Uh, 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 something that was also very well known by the ancient traditions, ancient religious traditions. They all knew, for instance, the samurai culture in Japan 
knew very well that when you learn something, an art or a craft, for instance, the martial arts, that there is first this rational stage in which you learn a set of techniques, a set of techniques that learn you how to handle your sword or a bow or no matter what weapon. But then if you practice these techniques long enough, you will develop a different kind of knowledge, a kind of knowledge that is more a resonating knowledge. You develop a certain feeling and it is this knowledge that is the ultimate knowledge, this knowledge that you can never articulate in a definitive way. This knowledge that has more, much more to do with resonance, feeling, empathy, than with rational knowledge. And the samurai um, uh, had a very nice proverb. They said, um, it's hard and difficult to learn the techniques of, uh, of the martial arts, but it is even more difficult to forget them again. And if you don't succeed in forgetting them again, before you go to the battlefield, you will die on the battlefield. So every real tradition of the past and every great scientist, scientist knows that rational understanding is the beginning of the process. It's important. But what really brings us in touch with the essence of life is not rational understanding. It's a kind of resonating knowledge which makes you feel the eternal principles of life and the eternal principles of humanity. And that is the rational understanding can never be the basis of human living together. If we try to establish a society on the basis of human living together, we ignore the essence of life and we destroy the essence of life. The only true cornerstone of human living together is these eternal ethical principles of humanity. That is what awaits us. What we are in now is a kind of a process of birth, I think. There is a large organism that puts a lot of pressure on a small organism. A large group of, of people, a mass, that puts a lot of pressure on a small group of people that do not go along with them. And through that pressure, they will push that small group on a path where it will give birth to something new, to a new awareness of the eternal principles of humanity and a new awareness of a truly humane way, uh, way of living together. I think that is what is happening now. And that is also the positive note I want to add. What happens now is difficult, it's hard, and the years to come will probably be tough years. People who do not want to go along with this uh, ideology we were talking about will be excommunicated uh, and so on. But it is necessary and it will bring us something very beautiful. So let's talk about those tough years. Um, we've gone through uh, the pandemic. There are still people who are suffering um, because they didn't go along with the narrative, particularly those who opted not to receive uh, COVID mRNA injections. Um, in my country of Australia, people still have their, uh, have are not able to go back to their old employment uh, because they, um, they uh, opted not to uh, undertake that uh, vaccination. Um, they're not allowed to go overseas. In various different countries, there are similar sort of um, measures against those people and the stigma uh, obviously from the group think that went on remains there uh, well and truly but uh, we did move on from one crisis to another you spoke about it uh, the ukraine russia crisis um so where are we at right now with this um observation of yours of mass formation and how far away are we from from full-blown totalitarianism? Because I also have a theory, theory borrowed from uh, an author you might have read about it, Rod Dreyer, that we currently are living in a form of totalitarianism, soft totalitarianism. Um, but I think that the vision of totalitarianism that you talk about is not so soft. So how far away are, are we from it? What is emerging now, I think, is a technocratic velvet glove totalitarianism. That's how Mirlo calls it, velvet glove totalitarianism. But watch out, in the velvet glove, there is an iron hand. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> so um, I don't think we live in a totalitarian state yet, uh, uh, at least not officially, because the, the officially the leaders of the country are still polit politically elected 
um, uh, or, or uh, democratically elected politicians. But of course, we see that this, uh, in the facts, we are already living in a state in which technocratic experts are the public leaders, because the, what they say will be done. And democratically elected politicians actually had to listen to them during the corona crisis. And that's what you will see again now, I think, um, in the economic crisis uh, that is uh, slowly beginning. Um, we will see how, again, uh, democratic um, technocratic experts uh, will be consulted. And these, technocra these technocratic experts, these economists, will take the lead uh, just like they did in the just like uh, technocratic experts took the lead uh, during the the corona crisis so uh, in fact we are we are more and more we are living in a technocratic system uh, instead of in a democracy but um well what will happen uh, is hard to predict of course uh, niels bohr had this famous quote uh, predicting is always difficult in particular if it is about the future so uh, also what will happen now is difficult. the more because it depends on what we will do, on what the small group that doesn't go along with the masses will do. This small group has a, has a choice. It can choose to become scared and to remain silent, trying to hide. Or it can do the opposite. It can choose to step up and to speak out. And that is, it is the last thing that we have to do, I think. Speaking out is crucial. Is just crucial. Just because as soon as you understand the mechanism of mass formation, the psychological mechanism, you understand that it is similar to hypnosis, you understand that it is created, provoked by the voice of someone. That's why totalitarian leaders use much, much more propaganda than classical dictators. Totalitarian leaders use propaganda and indoctrination because they are aware intuitively or consciously that their grip on the population is based on their voice that they have to hypnotize the population time and time again and as soon as you understand that you understand why it is so crucial to continue to speak out because if the dissonant voices stop to speak out the hypnosis or the mass formation becomes complete it becomes complete and the masses move on to the final stage of the mass formation, where they think it is their ethical duty to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with them. That is what happened in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union. And the correlation with the dissonant voices was perfectly clear. In 1930, the dissonant voices stopped to speak out in the Soviet Union. In 1935, they stopped to speak out in Nazi Germany. And within six months, the large-scale destruction campaign started. So, and the other, the other, the opposite happens when the dissonant voices continue to speak out. No matter what happens, when the dissonant voices continue to speak out, something else happens. The dissonant voices will never be able to wake up the masses. That's almost impossible. Sometimes it happens very rarely, but usually it doesn't happen. That's something that was very well described by Gustave Le Bon in his mm. famous book, *The Psychology of the Crowd*. Uh, Gustave Le Bon said that the dissonant voices that speak out won't usually won't succeed in waking up the masses, but, and that's crucial, something that I described in detail in my book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, the crucial thing is that the dissonant voices do not wake up the masses, but that doesn't mean they have no effect. They do have an effect. They constantly disturb the mass formation, and they prevent that the mass formation goes to this depth, to this level, where they people think that it is their right and their duty to destroy the people who do not go along with them. So that's crucial. If the dissonant voices continue to speak out, they disturb the mass formation, and they make sure that the masses exhaust themselves before they destroy the people who do not go along with them. So that's just, once you understand that, you know that the most important thing to do is to continue to speak out and it's just you can you have to do it for yourself. You also have to do it for the people in the masses, because if the masses have no dissonant voices anymore, they will start to destroy themselves as well. The, the masses always are a monster that devours its own children, Hannah Arendt said. And you also have to do it just because by speaking out, 
you live up to the ethical duty of articulating the words that emerge in you and that are sincere and honest. And if you continue to do that, even when you are under large group pressure, you go to a very fast mental, psychological, and even spiritual evolution. That's something that is described time and time again. The people in the concentration camps usually became beast-like, uh, uh, brutish uh, 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 in their behavior. They started to kill each other just to steal each other's food. And... Um, and uh, and clothes, for instance, that's something that is very well, very nicely described by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. The guy has stayed in the gulags for 15 years himself, and he described how most people became beast-like. But there was a small minority of people that went in exactly the opposite direction and that tried to represent a little bit of light themselves in this pool of darkness. And while everybody dehumanized, they became more and more humane and they... Uh, st stayed more and more true to uh, the ethical principles. And what Solzhenitsyn observed is very crucial. He observed that these people became stronger and stronger at the mental and often also, not always, also at the physical level. And so that's actually the process that is going on. There is a, a large group of people who puts a lot of pressure on a small group. This large group of people will exhaust themselves and the small group of people, if they make the right choice, in the first place, if they continue to speak out and if they try to stick, uh, as, to stay as close as possible to the principles of humanity, it will become stronger and stronger. And in the end, it will be ready at a certain moment to deliver the new principles uh, for a new kind of human living together. Well, that's the kind of future that we want and that's the kind of future that we aspire to. So I hope that all of the uh, viewers here of this uh, podcast uh, will be willing to speak up and do their bit to be part of that group that actually breaks the mass formation, uh, or at least not lets it sink further into the mire and eventually stops the move towards technocracy and tyrannical technocracy. Um, I would encourage everyone to read uh, Professor DeSmet's book, uh, the, to the Psychology of Totalitarianism. It's available at all good bookstores. Who is your publisher, uh, Matthias? My publisher is Chelsea Green. Um, Chelsea. Chelsea Green, yes. Which is based in the yeah. US and in uh, Soviet and um, uh, um, UK. Um, yes, so the book uh, is available through the publisher or on several online bookshops also. Online bookshops. Regular bookshops, I think. All good bookstores, as they say. So, uh, uh, and it would have to be a good bookstore to be stocking this because it certainly is a good book, well worth the read, well worth understanding where we've come, where we're heading, and what we can do to break uh, what would be a horrible future. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Desmet, and more power to you. I hope you uh, continue speaking up because I think that you are going to be a, a powerful weapon, if I can call it that in stopping this uh, descent into tyranny. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me.